0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up. So glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, And we should point out it's the last regular edition of the Three Martini Lunch for 2022. As we mentioned yesterday, tomorrow begins our major event of the year-end three martini lunch awards so tomorrow we'll have our very first uh, set of three awards most overrated most underrated most honest political figures then we'll continue this all next week uh, with a bunch of different categories, of course. Uh, rising Star, uh, People Fading to Oblivion, Person You're Sorry to See Pass Away, Best Idea, Worst Idea, Best Political Theater, Worst Political Theater, uh, Most Overreported, Most Underreported Story, uh, Biggest Political Liabilities, Our Favorite Personal Stories of the Year, Non Political Stories. And then uh, on January 2nd, uh, uh, Monday, January 2nd, we'll have our Person of the Year, Turncoat of the Year and our predictions for 2023. So a lot to get to, but today is our final uh, episode of the year in our usual format. We'll return to it on January 3rd. Uh, So Jim, let's start with uh, a doozy here uh, on our first uh, martini of the day. And of course, yesterday, the the big news in Washington was the visit of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, A lot of cloak and dagger necessary to get him here. Uh, I'm sure quite a bit will be necessary to get him back. And so he met with President Biden and also yesterday evening delivered an address to a joint session of Congress.
1: Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most
0: responsible way. And so this is also coming at a time, of course, where uh, Congress is about to agree to 40 plus billion dollars of additional spending uh, towards the war in Ukraine. And this has obviously built up a pretty intense debate on the right about this. Uh, I don't know about what the breakdown is. I think you and I agree, certainly, with the fact that Putin's territorial ambitions are a big problem. Uh, They need to be confronted and and siding with Ukraine uh, certainly makes a lot of sense because we know what Putin does when nobody gets in his way uh, of territorial ambition. He just wants more of it. So whether he would be willing to go after a NATO state if he were to not face much resistance in Ukraine, who knows? But um the Ukrainian people uh, certainly are in the right here. Uh, then there's the question of, you know, how much is too much uh, and how much money or I think we're over $100 billion now on what uh, on what we're spending. And it's it's been less than a year. Uh, and so some people want to make sure that that money's being spent in a responsible way. They say audit. And so some people say that that's playing into Putin's hands of whether or not we should support them. Uh, Zelensky himself has taken some steps that we would not appreciate, like banning opposition parties, opposition press, uh, churches that don't agree with his political statement. So I I think this is a complicated, nuanced issue, but it seems like, particularly on the right, and I guess you would throw the left in there as well, that we keep getting stuffed into these binary camps, and I don't think that's very helpful to anyone.
1: It isn't. And one of the things I've I've been thinking about as I looked over the reactions to Zelensky's visit when life presents you with a really thorny problem right i think broadly speaking on the right with the with a very few exceptions although some of those exceptions are pretty loud most conservatives do not want to see russia successfully conquer ukraine in whole or in part we do not like to see military aggression and the attempt to redraw borders by military force we don't like to see attacks on civilians We don't like to see rockets and bombs landing in schools and apartment buildings and playgrounds and all that. So we're all purely unified, and we don't want Putin to win the war. We look at Zelensky, and kind of paraphrasing Donald Rumsfeld as, you know, you go to war with the army you have. He is the leader of Ukraine. He might be our first choice. He might not be our first choice. But we don't have a choice in who's leading uh, Ukraine right now. He is the guy, and in fact, he's actually turned out to be pretty good at the rhetorical and inspirational aspect of leadership. Um, we can and I should also look at judging by the performance of the Ukrainian army, vastly outmanned, vastly outgunned, the fact that they've managed to turn this into a bloody stalemate and do so much with so little indicates that actually Ukraine's got some pretty good military uh leaders, although clearly they're getting a decent amount of advice and suggestions and all kinds of technological goodies from NATO so that's kind of where we are but at the same time look we'd rather not get pulled into a proxy war with Russia we have reasonable fear of this going from being a proxy war to a shooting war the nuclear saber rattling from Putin is certainly unnerving even if you know we're not sure whether he fully means it you know, this is a big, thorny, complicated problem. We want to help the Ukrainians, but we also don't want them to become a client state. We don't want to be on the hook for another 20 years of nation building like we were with Afghanistan. One of the objections I had had, I, again, I'd always been let's supporting Ukraine, let's help them, but like, you know, uh likely House Speaker, as of this recording, Kevin McCarthy, my attitude is they don't have a blank check and they should not expect us to have a blank check. And one of the gripes I'd had for much of the past year was that it seemed like the U.S. was helping uh, Ukraine a great deal more than our NATO allies and the rest of Europe. Well, I decided to go look this up this morning, and it turns out at least as of early December, the European Union had actually jumped ahead of the U.S. um, by the calculations of the Ukraine support tracker. And there's a link in today's Morning Jolt if you want to check out how they're measuring it. Uh, they put EU countries and institutions at about $55 billion. I'm not going to give you the numbers in euros, because I, if you're listening to this, I assume you use dollars. Uh, the U.S. was at about $51 billion. Uh, as of yesterday, that didn't count some of the most recent stuff in the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken announced a $1 billion drawdown that's going to provide Ukraine with expanded air defense. This is that Patriot missile system, things like that. Plus, an addition Department of Defense announced an additional $850 million in security assistance. That puts the total U.S. military assistance to Ukraine at $21.9 billion since the beginning of the administration. Now, so it's possible we've jumped ahead again, but it does feel like Europe is now somewhere in the ballpark of 50-50, which is a much more reasonable level than what it seemed to be earlier this year. It took, it took Europe a little while to get its act together, but now it looks like more of that aid is indeed going to Europe. And by the way, if European countries want to do more to help refugees and less to do military support, I can live with that. You know, as long as you're helping in some way, I'm not going to give too many, give too many people too much grief about that. But all of this is complicated. There are no easy answers. There's really not any sign that this is going, there's some sort of, you know, one strategic attack or masterstroke that's going to end this war. Uh, it's going to go through the winter and it maybe will end next year, but nobody really knows. That's, you know, the war is unpredictable. And so it's very understandable that people are like, oh, how long are we going to be in for this? I understand all these challenges. I think the fact that this doesn't present easy answers makes certain people look for easy answers. One easy answer is give them whatever they want and no matter the cost, which I don't think is a responsible course of action for the US. One answer is, well, let's, let's cut them off, put them on their own, which is not a responsible choice either. And then in the middle, I think you see people getting wrapped up in kind of absurd side issues most notably yesterday the fact that you know when Zelensky was in there he was in his usual olive green t-shirt and the you know khaki style cargo pant type pants he he was in the what he's worn and he said i think his last address before the war started was in a suit and everyone since then has been in this because he's his country is in wartime and i think he feels like he has switched from being a peacetime leader to a wartime leader and it's just not appropriate to wear a suit in his mind We can argue about that. We can quibble about that. As I wrote in Today's Morning Jolt, I'd be irked if, say, Emmanuel Macron showed up to the White House and wasn't wearing a suit. But the idea put forth by certain folks that somehow, you know, Zelensky's disrespecting America or, you know, not showing, he's coming across as a lack of gratitude or something. I mean, listen to what he said to Congress. And he was constantly expressing gratitude. He was crediting America for Ukraine's victories and saying, we couldn't have done this without you. So the idea that he's somehow, I don't know, there's this narrative taking shape. And I think people would rather argue about Zelensky's clothes, Greg, because it means you don't really need to know anything about what the rest of the war is going. You just have, oh, I think it's, I think it's appropriate. Oh, I think it's not appropriate. And you, you throw this little food fight over whether he should have worn a suit or not. The best joke, by the way, I heard is that a certain Department of Energy—he did bring a suit—but that a certain Department of Energy former employee stole a suitcase and thus he
0: couldn't change. Who knows he was coming a baggage claim? But uh, yeah. apparently, apparently, Sam Britton did. Uh, quick follow-up on the money, Jim. You mentioned that we've we're in for over twenty billion now. Uh, I swear there was a, a congressional package for thirty or forty billion a few months ago, and now we're we're on the brink of forty some more. So is that from a different? Part of uh, spending well, is that, the, is that an executive blen- spending. Okay, the Blinken
1: is from is it party, only military assistance? I'm assuming that 30 okay. to 40 billion number you've know, probably would include all forms of assistance, aid for refugees, economic
0: assistance, loans, the whole nine yards. Gotcha, gotcha. I think your larger point though is correct, Jim. You can want some accountability for uh, what exactly is being done with these tens upon tens of billions of taxpayer dollars that we're sending to Ukraine and also calling out Zelensky for his very harsh restrictions on basic freedoms in his country without being labeled a Putin stooge. And you can also want to uh, support uh, the Ukrainian resistance against Russian aggression without somehow being a traitor uh, to the United States of America. It's exhausting. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And of course, one of the reasons that the Zelensky visit is controversial is that it comes just as Congress is getting ready, most likely, unfortunately, to pass this gargantuan $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that's stuffed with pork and a lot of other things that most people haven't had a chance to read. No regular order. This has become par for the course. And they always try to jam it down uh, the, the throats of members right at Christmas. I mean, you want to get home, right? So vote for this thing that you haven't read. And so that's part of it. The Ukrainian money is part of it, but also uh, money that just why is it even there? And earmarks are back. A lot of different members of Congress uh, are are putting out uh, threads on Twitter of of ridiculous amounts of taxpayer money being spent on very dubious things. Chip Roy of Texas has a thread of 55, what he calls terrible earmarks that no Republican should vote for. Other people have done this as well. Congressman Bishop of North Carolina is going through the actual bill and doing the same thing. And so there's a lot of stuff here that doesn't need to be in the bill, But the problem I see here, Jim, is and it's not in the chip or a thread, but I've seen it elsewhere, is that Republicans, probably on the Senate side, more in the House since the House has been carved out of the process, more than happy uh, to get their chance at the trough here with the earmarks, which is maddening because Republicans, you know, they constantly pose as the fiscally responsible people when they get the majority, except for when Newt Gingrich first took over. He tried to actually get spending under control. But if you look at the 05, 06 Republicans, if you look at what the Republicans did in the first two years of the Trump administration, when they had the chance to do something about it, they don't, but they do stuff like this. Absolutely maddening.
1: Yeah, and for a long time, if you were looking for any sign of life amongst fiscal concert, you know, conservatism and, you know, limited government amongst Republicans in Congress, this was the one thing you could point to. Yes, the overall spending bills were high. Yes, they too often... Abandoned the regular order of the appropriations process. Yes, it all kind of got lumped into an omnibus. You could say, "Hey, at least we banned earmarks. Now the argument of Republicans learned kind of the hard way um, was that earmarks had always been a way to get somebody to, you know, support a bill that they otherwise did not want to have. If you see the job of being a majority leader in Congress as being like herding cats, Then this was, you know, earmarks were a little bit of catnip or cat food or, you know, however else you want to extend that metaphor. It was a way to go, oh, you know, you may think like this is a big, lousy spending bill, but look, there's this project in your district you've wanted for a long time. Look, it's got funding for it. So now you have to vote for it. And members of Congress would eventually come around. And it was, it was a way to get things done. It was, think about, you know, just as alcohol can be a social lubricant, earmarks were a legislative lubricant. Um, And by the way, that's the only time you'll hear the word lubricant used in uh, the three martini lunch podcast so if you're a majority leader you can see the advantage of it if you're a taxpayer you don't see the advantage of it because yeah sometimes it's understandable that members of congress want to have some project in their home district but a lot of times this stuff is just hey i really like seeing things named after myself perhaps none more egregious than robert Byrd. um so they got rid of them democrats won back control of the house So democrats in 2018 they said we're bringing them back you didn't see any, you know, backlash against Democrats for bringing them back. I think unfortunately, this is an issue that only a very small minority of us care about, but it seems like a good example of, you know, concentrated private benefits or very limited public benefits at a widespread public cost. And that's how the system thrived for a really long time. And you could get a whole bunch of stuff done that didn't really that worked out great for whoever was building that that earmark. It was great for whoever was having that earmark named after themselves. Uh, But for the rest of us, it didn't work out so great. And yet, this is where we are. And now Republicans themselves have also effectively abandoned this stance on earmarks. We, in the end, Republicans tried going without earmarks, and they concluded it was just too hard. It is disgraceful, and it says a great deal about the state of our government in 2022. And I don't expect 2023 to be much better.
0: Yeah, and you need voters to care about that stuff. And ultimately, as we've talked about before, uh, they don't in big enough numbers. I'm sure many of our listeners do, but uh, the people who keep spending wildly keep getting reelected. And of course, you know, you may be against earmarks in general, but if you're about to uh, bring in half a million dollars for the Jim Garrity Center for the Arts and Authenticity Woods in your district, well, we love that. Wait, was that a proposal? Because that, that if it is, it's not such a bad idea, Greg. <laughs> Oh, God, no, it happened to me. <laughs> so that's it. Well, I hate these other ideas in these other districts. those That's just total waste. Oh, but I, I love cut, the... Uh... you know cut the fat, not the bone marrow. My goodness, that's <laughs> necessary spending. Yes, yes. We need the Butterfly Museum for $2 million here. So I don't know how it gets solved. We're $32 trillion in debt, and that's without the unfunded liabilities. And so... Uh, Nobody seems to be serious about it, and it's absolutely maddening, and the few that are (laughs) and are taking to Twitter to talk about it, uh, I feel like they're banging their head against the table, and they're right, but they're vastly outgunned, and that's sad, even their own party. All right, on to our final martini in our regular format for the year, Jim, and uh, somehow this seems appropriate. The Republicans are fighting with each other. It seems to be our theme here for the last for the last uh, three martinis of the year. First Ukraine, then spending. Now who's going to chair the party? You and I have talked about this. Ronna McDaniel, you know, she was the Michigan chair in 2016. Trump narrowly and surprisingly wins Michigan, which hadn't gone for a Republican candidate since 1988. Uh, then 2018 happens. Uh, Democrats take the House, but Republicans gain a couple seats in the Senate. Then 2020, Trump loses and the Democrats get the Senate, so they control everything. And then 2022, Republicans get the House, uh, but not at the margins that anybody expected. Lose a seat in the Senate, which should never have happened. And so the knives are out, and I would argue justifiably so for Ronna Romney as uh, chair of the RNC. Uh Lee Zeldin ultimately deciding not to take her on. Harmeet Dillon, the GOP attorney based out West, uh, is doing that. And the only other candidate in the race that I'm aware of is Mike Lindell, who's currently focused on uh, auditing the Florida governor's vote because he's convinced that Ron DeSantis really didn't win by that much. So I think think we know who our uh, main options are in this contest. And so in Florida, the GOP... Uh, may vote on whether to support throwing out Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair. Uh, Former state rep Anthony Sabatini, the newly elected chair of the Lake County Republican Party, secured enough signatures from party officials to call a special meeting to decide whether McDaniel should be terminated as RNC chair, saying, quote, "...Ronna McDaniel failed in her position as RNC chair in the 2022 election cycle and has yielded extremely unimpressive election results for the GOP in the last three election cycles." Uh, Republican Party of Florida Chair Joe Gruters is now obligated to at least call a special meeting given the number of people who signed the petition, but it does not guarantee a vote would be taken. And ultimately, I'm not sure even if Florida did want her to go, what the impact would be on the national uh, decision for who is the RNC chair. And I'm not even sure when that vote is, Jim. So uh, I I think there's legitimate concern about Ronna McDaniel. I'm not sure what difference this will make. Uh, But my question to you is, the longer this plays out and the uglier it gets, what's the impact on the party?
1: Well, my first thought was, you know, we've seen a disappointing year for Republicans in 2018, the midterms. But okay, midterms always are rough for the incumbent president's party then 2020 happens and you know Trump loses his bid for re-election uh Republicans did gain some seats in the house so it was a sign that maybe things were going in the right direction then in 2022 they did not win control of the of the Senate and their majority in the house was significantly lower um so you're kind of looking at you know Ronna Romney McDaniel and saying Mm -hmm. what successes can you point to to say you deserve another term there now I went back and I was like, don't most people serve for only a few years? Like, you know, now Reince Priebus was there from 2011 to 2017. So Priebus may have set the uh, precedent for a long-serving RNC chair. But you look at the previous ones, Michael Steele, uh, Mike Duncan, and Mel Martinez were kind of, you know, split a a term. Ken Melman was there for a term. Ed Gillespie, Jim Gilmore. They've all kind of been about a two, three-year term, usually aligning with the election cycle they have a good one they have a bad one they say you know what time to pass the torch time to say thank you did my work on to somebody else and it was like RNC chair was not something you made a career out of and when you've been in charge for now three election cycles and none of them have gone all that well that just seems like the most natural time to say Ronna McDaniel thank you for your time thank you for service but it's time to go in a new direction Uh, NFL franchises change their coaches after several consecutive losing years. It's not clear why the Republican National Committee uh, would have a different attitude. And so I'm glad to see Florida is recognizing this. I don't necessarily have a strong preference out of any of the uh, mentioned candidates yet. I see unique flaws. Mike Lindell probably could use a good long nap on those wonderful pillows of his. But you just kind of look at this and say, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting to quote the wise philosopher, uh, Dr. Phil. And I just kind of feel like, uh, why would Republicans expect something different? And do they feel like the RNC has been particularly well-run, particularly well-managed, um, You know that it's had a deft hand during this whole period? I don't think that's the case. I think Romney McDaniel is there because she's loyal to Trump. And that's really the only thing she can point to. And at some point, Republicans need to expect more out of their leadership. Uh, You know, not every defeat in 2022 can be laid at her feet, nor in 2020, nor in 2018. But at some point, it's time to give somebody else a turn. And this just seems glaring to me that, you know, this is no sign that the RNC has figured out how to maximize its advantages when it's got the wind at its back or when it's got the wind in its face like in 2018. Why would you want to keep this? But hey, you know, the other thing is that the Republican National Committee, 168 members of it, they operate in such a different echo chamber world that maybe in their mind, you know, McDaniel's done a fantastic job, and why would you ever want to change?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're just personally fond of her. But, I mean, the results speak for themselves. Uh, she might be doing okay on the money front. That's a big part of it. It's certainly why Michael Steele's uh, tenure at the RNC was a brief one, and now he's probably more likely to end up at the DNC. But uh, in terms of the loyalty, I think most of those committee members are, are there for the long haul, right? I mean, this that's not something that turns over all that often. Uh probably depends on the on the particular person or the particular area of the country, but most of these people have been involved in the movement for a long time. So, I mean, if what's happening isn't working, I don't see why they're so loyal to her, but maybe it's just a personal thing. I don't know.
1: Well, I was going to say ideally your, you know, uh the messaging for anybody involving something like this would not be, well, you just don't understand. They're doing a great job. No, sorry, you you don't you haven't earned our trust on that. You can't just say trust me, this is all working out because otherwise, if it was, we'd be seeing more
0: wins. Well, I think your coaching analogy was fantastic. Could be the greatest guy in the world. Could be great culture for a few years. You you give them maybe a couple extra years to figure out if they can turn it around wins wise, but uh, ultimately. The alumni, the boosters, you know, they expect some wins. If you want good players to want to come to your program in college, for example, you got to put some wins on the board. And uh, when it comes to politics, winning might not be the only thing that matters, but it's a really important metric. Look, Republican National Committee, Greg and I know a thing or two about ineffective coaches. Trust us. They
1: very rarely get all better all by themselves.
0: Yeah. There's been more Bears coaches than uh, RNC chairs since we've started doing this podcast. And I'm pretty sure the same is true of the Jets. So, uh, yeah, we understand the turnover process, both in employment and in actual turnovers. So, uh, Jim, uh, on that front, have a great uh, have a great Thursday. And uh, I- I'm sure most folks know we've already recorded our year-end stuff. But uh, I'll see you officially tomorrow on the podcast. Keep listening, folks. We still have good, interesting stuff, even if it's not quite as live as you're used to. Exactly right. But we've got something fresh for you every single weekday, uh, going all the way through the end of the year. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy our conversations about our bests and worsts and most and least uh, all the way through as we assess what happened over the past 12 months. So he's Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, Don't forget about Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Get us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great Thursday. And join us on Friday for the first installment of our year-end Three Martini Lunch Awards.